Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome to this new episode of your Linux and open source news podcast. This week we have a pretty weird move from Ubuntu preventing their official flavors to pre-install Flatpak and wanting them to only use Debian packages and snaps. We have the beta of GNOME 44 being released with some pretty cool improvements and we have Microsoft entrenching themselves as an anti-consumer powerhouse with two bad moves on Windows and Microsoft Edge. And we also have the usual updates to our desktop environments, news about Solus, and some worrying privacy-related news on the Play Store. And a lot more than that. Now before we dive in, as always, you can find all the links to the articles I used to create this podcast in the show notes, And the usual reminder, this show is user-supported, so if you like it without ads or sponsors, please consider supporting it using the links in the show notes as well. Okay, now let's begin. So, to begin, we have that weird, canonical, impulsed move. Uh, It looks like a few Ubuntu flavors were willing to pre-install Flatpak out of the box. I think the main one was Kubuntu, but I think Ubuntu Mate, uh, no, not Kubuntu, Xubuntu, and Ubuntu Mate were the big ones that for 23.04, they wanted to pre-install Flatpak as well as having snaps and Debian packages available. Well, it looks like Canonical did not really like this initiative uh, because they announced that the official Ubuntu flavors will not, in fact, be allowed to ship Flatpak by default to their users. And their argument is that Ubuntu flavors must represent the whole Ubuntu ecosystem. And so they must have a common experience, a common core, which apparently includes using snaps. And Canonical stated that in an ideal world, users experience a single way to install software. And obviously here they want snaps. <laughs> they don't want people to use flat packs to install software, which is understandable because, well, snaps is their technology and they want to push it. But they're also conveniently ignoring that the vast majority of Linux distributions have embraced Flatpak instead of Canonical's packaging format. And I know not everyone is a Flatpak fan, and there are some reasons why you might not want to use Flatpaks. But having it as an option as the default alongside your regular packagers or even alongside snaps is always a good idea because the one way to install software should refer to the app store, not to the packaging format. The packaging format should be completely transparent for users. They should not have to care about which package they use. They should just open their, well, I mean, I'm talking about regular users here, not power users like, like we can be. But regular users should just open their app store, look for the application, click install, and not have to worry about which package they install. Is it a flat pack? Is it a snap? Is it a deb, an RPM, a, a whatever else is used elsewhere? Uh, yeah, they just shouldn't have to care about this. And so... Taking a stand saying that the packaging format is part of the common core experience of all Ubuntu flavors just feels wrong or boneheaded at best. And they have another rationale that I can understand a little bit better. Uh, It's that users expect the packaging format to be supported and maintained by the community and the distro they use. So when you use, for example, Kubuntu, you want the packages in Kubuntu to be maintained and reviewed by the Kubuntu team, or at least the Ubuntu team, uh, which Kubuntu is part of. 
And this one I can understand, sort of. Like, of course, if you add Flathub, then your distro does not really control what is available to you. They don't review it. And so you might install applications that, don't, that just don't work well, that don't integrate well with your system. And the distro might be blamed for it because they ship Flathub out of the box. I can understand this rational. But still, <laughs> so many other distributions decided to go for Flathub and Flatpak. Even Fedora is going to go for Flathub. I don't think it makes much sense apart from a not invented here syndrome. They just want to push their own technology and they consider it a part of the Ubuntu experience. Which means that, yeah, out of the box, no official Ubuntu flavor will be able to ship Flatpak pre-installed and enabled in the graphical app store. Now, this decision does not affect any Ubuntu derivative distribution that don't use the Ubuntu branding. Uh, stuff like Zorin OS, Elementary OS, or Linux Mint will still be able to pre-install Flatpak and add Flathub or not if they want to. They're not affected. Only the ones that use the official branding are affected. And users will obviously still be able to install Flatpak from the command line. They are not blocking the install. They are not removing the package at all. And users who already have Flatpak pre-installed through the distro that they use, uh, they won't have that package removed either. Uh, all flavors have put in place a migration to keep the package installed, even if it was provided as the default experience and wasn't installed manually. It's still, in my opinion, a very boneheaded move. I like snaps on servers. Uh, my own Nextcloud server runs the Nextcloud snap. I think they are great for servers, but on desktop, they are objectively inferior to Flatpaks. They are slower to open, they are less up-to-date in terms of using portals and other new features expected uh, from Wayland, for example. They generally use more space, they clutter your mount points, and more importantly, the underlying technology has to be updated for each snap. For example, the work that Canonical and the Snap team have done on the Firefox Snap to make it faster uh, by using more specific ways of compressing the snap and, and the file system. These have to be done individually for each other snap. Everything that they developed and maintained for this Firefox snap has to be applied manually to all other snaps. So the technological base doesn't seem very portable and doesn't seem very sturdy, honestly, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a developer. I never created a package, so I might be completely wrong and have misinterpreted something here. But yeah, it, it just feels like they want to push their solution because it's their solution. But let's not forget that the Snap backend is not open source. The Snap store is not open. You cannot create your own Snap repo when Flatpak and Flathub lets you create any remote you want if you want to. There's not just Flathub. So in my opinion, they are going against the will of the majority of the open source community here. And I don't think it's really great. It doesn't feel like a good move, honestly. Now, talking about Flatpak, Flathub is preparing for a big redesign that looks pretty muted in terms of colors and looks. Uh, first, they changed their logo. It was three building blocks that kind of formed the shape of an F for Flathub. Uh, but they changed it to something that kind of looks like the PlayStation controller symbols. You got a triangle, you got a square, a circle, and a cross, and they're all rotated to the right, which you can't see for the square and the circle, but you can see for the triangle and the cross. So it, it's not exactly the PlayStation symbols, but it kind of looks like it. Uh, and they're just using very muted colors, uh, black, white, gray, and a light blue. So basically their rationale here is to focus on the applications themselves. They just want to be the portal for the applications. 
so they don't want to have a super strong branding that eclipses the content, which I can understand. I think it's a, it's a good logical move. Uh, they also created new download buttons. You already had the available on Flathub or downloaded from Flathub buttons. So they redone them with the new logos and the new color palette. And they also revamped the whole website, the whole Flathub website. You can already browse it at beta.flathub.org and you'll see it's really much, much improved. It looks a lot more modern. It looks a lot cleaner. And application pages now have separated elements in little cards, basically reminiscent of how GNOME software looks. And yes, it's very nice. I think it's a good move. I think if Flathub is to become in the future one of the main ways for users to discover applications and install them, well, it needs to look good. It needs to inspire confidence. It needs to look reliable. It needs to look professional. And the current version of Flathub kind of looks amateurish, like something that was whipped up relatively quickly to have something running. Uh, the new version looks more professional and I think is more confidence inspiring. Now on that beta version, you will also see that they added the verified badge to certain applications, which don't worry, it's not something that you have to pay for uh, to get access to certain features. It's an automatic check mark that gets added to applications that have been uploaded by developers who have uh, undertaken the verification process. Basically what it means for users is that the application they are looking at or they are downloading has been created and uploaded and packaged by the main app developer. So their verification technique seems to rely on uh, basically just proving you own the, the domain linked to the app. When you create an app on Flathub, it's generally called org.something or com.something. I think it's org.developername.appname or something. So you just need to prove that you own this domain and then you're good to go. And you can, and when you upload the package, you are now verified and users can know that, yes, the application is coming from the original developers and hasn't been packaged by a third party. It's some sort of a mark of trust, basically. So it's going to be coming to Flathub when the new release, when the new website is released. And I would hope we're going to see these check marks as well in, uh, in Discover, GNOME software, and other software stores that can take advantage of Flathub. Now, all that's missing, in my opinion, is the ability to pay for an application. Uh, maybe along the lines of what Elementary OS does, uh, like a pay-what-you-want model. I think they really should add that. I think they're working on it, uh, but I haven't seen any new developments on that front. So yeah, I hope they're bringing that soon. Now, let's talk about Microsoft. And I know it's about Windows and Microsoft Edge, and it has nothing to do with Linux. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it's important to point out the bad practices of these companies just to show people that it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to endure through this crap. You can change, you can try something else. So that's why I still report on like the major bad stuff that these companies do. Because yeah, that it, you just need to know that they're bad if you're not aware of them and if you're still using Windows or Edge. So first, uh, Microsoft decided to add some arbitrary things to Windows. Uh, you already know that Windows 11 is not installable on a lot of computers. They added some really weird requirements for running the system, uh, notably support for a TPM chip and using a relatively recent CPU. Uh, it also looks like you kinda need a GPU for it to run well because the UI is completely accelerated. But if you disable all these in using a registry hack, you can still run Windows 11 perfectly fine on any computer that doesn't have a TPM chip 
and doesn't have a relatively recent CPU. Uh, you also need to do these registry hacks to install Windows in a virtual machine on VirtualBox, for example. You will have to launch a command line uh, using the terrible Windows command line, and you will have to open regedit, and you will have to change a few values for the OS to actually be able to install in a virtual machine, which is mind-bogglingly stupid. And so now that they added this and they found that users found a lot of ways to bypass this, well, now they're going to add a watermark to your desktop anyways. So if you're running Windows 11 on an unsupported system, expect to see a little phrase in the bottom right of your, of your desktop all the time that never disappears and that I think also superimposes uh, over the application you're currently running. And it's going to tell you that you're running on an unsupported system. And that's it. That, that's, that's the new feature. They added this. Somebody wrote code for this. Microsoft paid someone to write code to annoy their users. Even users that are faithful and that want to run their new operating system, which is not everyone. A lot of people would prefer to still run Windows 10. But some users want to use your latest OS and bypass your requirements. And now you're going to annoy them. That's completely stupid. So it's going to be the same thing as when you have Windows not activated using a license key. You're going to have that small watermark in the bottom right. Of course, some people already found ways to remove that message, which is good. But come on, why do you spend time annoying your users? And the second feature, well, let's call it a feature uh, that Microsoft is adding is to Microsoft Edge. Uh, they really want you to use Edge and not Chrome. And they're really annoyed that some people use Edge as the way to download Chrome. So now they're injecting, well, at least they're trying out uh, because you can't see it, like everyone can't see it, but it has been spotted in the wild. They're injecting ads on the Google Chrome website when you're using Edge. So the website will load and then it will get lowered by half the size of your screen to display a big fat banner telling you, why would you want to use Chrome? Microsoft Edge is Chrome, but with the added Microsoft trust, as they put it. Which, come on, you're using the pre-install web browser to change the content of the websites your users are navigating to. What the hell? What's next? Are you going to replace everybody else's ads with ads for Microsoft products? Or, or are you just going to, to steal the ad revenue from websites? What's next? It's weird. Why are you doing this? It's, I don't understand it. I don't understand how it's still, first, legal to do said things. And second, why would you spend time developing these things? Just compete on features. Don't compete on naggingness. It's it's stupid. So yeah, basically, I just wanted to report on that just because, well, if you're using Linux, now you feel even more comfortable using Linux. And if you use Windows, maybe it's a little eye opener on, well, the terrible things that Microsoft does and the terrible ways they use their time and resources. Now, let's move back to pure Linux-focused stuff. Uh, the beta for GNOME 44 is now out, and you can already try it out if you want using GNOME OS, which I must stress is not a distribution built for daily use. It's not like KDE Neon. It's something that's only meant for testing purposes. It's not meant to be run as a daily driver. Uh, so you can already download GNOME OS and try out the GNOME 44 beta. So what have they added in here? First, uh, there are the quick settings. They were introduced in the latest, ver in the last version of GNOME, uh, GNOME 43. And uh, now they've been revamped a lot. Uh, first with the Bluetooth toggle, now actually being useful. 
Uh, right now, if you click the Bluetooth toggle in the quick settings, it just, it just turns Bluetooth on and off. And on some of my computers, when you turn it off, it actually completely disappears from the quick settings, uh, probably because it turns off the whole Bluetooth card. And so you have to go back into the settings to re-enable it, which makes this toggle completely useless. I used to install an extension that makes it behave more like the Wi-Fi network. With a little arrow in the right, you click it and you see a list of devices you previously connected to. And that's gonna be the new default behavior in GNOME 44. That's what they're gonna do by default without using another extension. You will see all the devices that you previously connected to and you can reconnect to them by just clicking on them. It's easy. All the toggles also gained more descriptive text to better separate the toggle uh, from the little list that comes after it. Uh, if you use GNOME, you know that, like for example, the Wi-Fi has this little pill button and on the right, it's a little arrow that when clicked, displays the list of networks. So now this little arrow will still be there, but the Wi-Fi toggle will have Wi-Fi in the title and then the name of the network. So you always know which toggle is what and the name of the toggle is not replaced by what it's currently connected to. I think it's more legible and I think it's better. And they also improved uh, keyboard navigation for these toggles. So when you open the quick settings, you can more easily either select the toggle or select the little list to the right. Now you will also be able to click on the speaker icon to completely mute the volume, which is cool. Uh, they revamped the screenshot icon because it was like a, a I don't know, a, a photo thing, but it looked like it was gonna take a photo or like a picture of like the webcam. So they, they changed it to reflect that it's gonna be a screenshot. That's super minor as a change. But what's bigger is that they added a background app section. I already talked about it last week because it was covered in the This Week in Gnome blog posts. Uh, but they're gonna add a background app section to the list of the quick settings. It's only going to appear when you have applications running in the background that don't currently have a window open. When you don't have any of these, you won't see this section. And basically it's their replacement for tray icons. You click on the quick settings and you have the list of applications that are running like Discord, VLC, I don't know, Nextcloud, Warpinator or any other thing that might be running in the background and usually uses a tray icon. Now, it is not going to be a full replacement for tray icons because you don't get the context menu that you get with tray icons. So I don't think anyone that currently uses like the app indicator extension will be satisfied by this new thing. But at least it lets you see what is running in the background and it lets you close them, which is nice. And maybe now you will stop having these stupid notifications all the time saying something is running in the background. Something is running in the background. I have... So many of these for my backup apps, for my Nextcloud app, and it's very, very annoying. So maybe these will disappear now and I will just be able to see them in the background apps. I personally will keep using the app indicator extension because the context menu in these apps is very useful. So maybe they will add that later. But for now, it's, it's a first step, but it's not going to be enough at all. Now, the other major feature, which a lot of people should be very happy about, is that the file picker finally gained an icon view and image thumbnails, which means that when you're looking for a specific image to open in another app or to upload from somewhere, you're now going to see thumbnails and you're going to be able to pick the image you actually want to send, which is finally there. But I don't know why it took so long, maybe... GTK3 and the technology they used was just not up to snuff and did not let them do that. But if that was the case, then it really sucked because that's an extremely basic feature. And now it's there. 
And the file manager also regained the ability to expand folders in list views. It lost that in GNOME 43 uh, with the GTK4 version of Nautilus and they added that back in, which is also very good. They revamped the lock screen as well. Uh, now, instead of seeing that really weird gray pattern in the back that is super muted and kind of boring, you'll see the current user's wallpaper that is blurred. Uh, pretty much like if you use the Blur My Shell extension on GNOME, it's gonna look about the same. And the user icons have been made bigger, so they waste less space in that lock screen, I guess. It, it looks kind of good in screenshots. Uh, GNOME will now support WireGuard VPNs. They will let you share Wi-Fi networks using a QR code. They revamped the whole accessibility panel to be more usable, which is nice for an accessibility panel. They added some little video animations in the mouse and touchpad settings to showcase the difference between normal scrolling and natural scrolling. Uh, they will now show you the kernel version and the firmware information in the About panel of the settings. And they have various improvements to most GNOME core apps like GNOME Web, Console, Maps, Boxes, but these are relatively minor changes. So it doesn't look like a big major release, it looks like it's an evolution over GNOME 43, but I don't see anything wrong with that. Like, I think GNOME right now is in a very good usable place, and so tweaking and revamping the things that they added seems to be the right way to go. Now let's talk about Solus. Uh, Solus, if you don't know about it, is basically the showcase distribution for the budgie desktop environment. And it's pretty cool as a distro. Well, I'm saying that, but they, they don't use the vanilla version of budgie. They, they add a lot of things onto it. But up until now, up until Fedora added uh, an official spin for budgie, it was basically the closest thing you could get. Uh, it's also an interesting distro because they build everything from scratch. They're not using like Red Hat or Ubuntu as a base. They build all their packages from scratch and they build the whole distro from scratch, which is pretty rare nowadays. But they had a big issue and they still have a big issue. Their website, their forum and their bug tracker went down on January 19th. And it is still currently unavailable at the time I'm recording this podcast. Now, Fortunately, they clarified that no, the distro is not dying. No, it's not that they're shutting down or whatever. It's just that they have a big issue on the website, uh, which is linked to DNS mask apparently, and the servers just are down and they just can't manage to get them back up. So this didn't create any data loss. The distribution is fine. All the package repositories are still available and users of Solus can keep running their distro without any issue. But if you want to download Solus right now, you'll have to either find a torrent or just find a third-party website that lists distro links. Um, so do check MD5 checksums uh, if you want to download Solus right now, just to make sure that you're downloading the real thing and not a revamped ISO with weird things added on top of it. Now, it still raises some questions. It's been a long while since the website has been down and it's not a good look for the project that it's taken them more than a month to get it back. Like, what kind of issue would mean that you cannot solve it in a month? It seems weird. And so to reassure people, they posted a little roadmap on Reddit letting people know that they plan on fixing that website issue. Uh, then they will release an updated ISO for Solus. And they also detailed the future plans for the distro, uh, including support for Secure Boot, a new package manager called Sol, Flatpak and Snap integration in their software center, and moving to Pipewire as the default. So I hope they can solve this because 
it doesn't look very professional when you have your website down for a full month and you still haven't managed to get it back up. It kind of looks like either you don't care about it or, or there are not as many people working on the project as you might think and they just don't have time to dedicate to it. But yeah, all in all, it just doesn't look good for Solus. Now let's talk about the Linux kernel. Uh, the new version 6.2 has been released and it is not an LTS, but it still brings a lot of cool new things for us Linux users. So first, it has out-of-the-box support for Intel Arc GPUs and support for the terrible, yucky Intel's on-demand driver that basically lets people buy DLC for their Xeon CPU and unlock more power because, yes, Intel is doing that now. If you want to unlock certain specific features on a Xeon CPU, you have to pay an additional DLC, whatever license, that unlocks these features. So they're here in the hardware, but they're not enabled. Well, at least Linux now lets you take advantage of that if you want to become a, a licensed paid customer of Intel. Blech. Now, Skylake CPUs should also get more performance with an improved mitigation feature for Redbleed, which is a vulnerability on these chips. But the headline of 6.2 is probably the added support for Apple's M1 Pro, M1 Max, and M1 Ultra straight in the mainline kernel, which means that any distro that runs 6.2 out of the box will be installable on an Apple M1 Mac, which is nice because that means you don't have to use specifically the Azahi Linux distro or try to refit the Azahi kernel on top of the distro you actually use. That's nice. They also improved the NTFS driver uh, to hide the dot files that Linux could create on that NTFS file system, which means that browsing that partition on Windows again will be less annoying. You won't see plenty of dot files everywhere. They can be hidden. They also added support for DualShock 4s in the PlayStation HID driver, but this one I'm a bit surprised by because I thought that the PS4 controller worked really fine on Linux before, so I don't really know what has been added here. Uh, the One X Player handheld now has better support for fans and sensors, and there's early support for RDX 3000 GPUs from NVIDIA in the Nuvo driver, which also surprises me because I kind of thought that Nuvo drivers were being superseded by the new driver that is being worked on, uh, which is fully open source and based on what NVIDIA opened up. But apparently they are going to be developed side by side, which doesn't really make sense for me, but okay. And so they also improved a lot of file systems on this new version of the Linux kernel, like BetterFS, SquashFS, or XFAT. And they added the base work for supporting Wi-Fi 7, USB 4, Wake, On, Connect, or Disconnect. And they also added support for 4K 60Hz displays running from a Raspberry Pi. So you can either compile this new version yourself, or you can wait for your distro to package and release it, which should happen relatively quickly if you're not using an LTS. So you should probably wait for your distro to package it, it's just easier and you run less risks of breaking something. Now something that I completely missed at the beginning of the month uh, is the roadmap for Peertube. Uh, they published a full-on roadmap of what they want to work. And Peertube 5.1 should be available at the end of February, so really in just a few days. And that version should uh, basically improve how instance administrators can manage account registrations on their servers. They will also have access to an improved API to let users authenticate using external plugins and they will retrieve comments faster under videos. 
and they will have an option to resume lives uh, with a button in the player. So if you pause the live or if you went back to rewatch something, you can now resume to the very latest moment that is currently happening. So they will also have a new release in May, which supports remote transcoding, which means that you can let, you can delegate all the transcoding work instead of being done on the instance and slowing down the actual server itself, you can delegate it to another device that will do the transcoding so your server and your instance actually stays fast and smooth for everyone, which is good. But the big, big version, the most important one will be at the end of the year, it's gonna be PeerTube 6 and it should have chapters for videos, something that is really sorely missing right now. It should let you protect videos with a password or a token. It will let you have thumbnails in the progress bar when you're scrubbing the little, uh, the little progress bar at the bottom of the player so you can see where you're at and where you're going. And it will let creators upload a new version of their video to add edits or changes, something that even YouTube doesn't allow right now. And I think it's great that they are letting users do that. The project will also hire an intern for six months to help them get work done and they will work on content curation for the main Peertube website so there's more of an easy gateway to watch stuff on Peertube. Now I've been using it for a while now, I'm on the Tilvids instance and I have a few thoughts uh, about Peertube. First, publishing there is now extremely easy if your instance supports YouTube Sync. You just Click once, type the URL of your channel and you're done. Videos will sync there and it's, you're good to go. They will appear an hour or two after you publish them on YouTube. You have nothing else to do. Second, it really, really lacks a mobile app to manage your channel as a creator. To get all the comments centralized in a single place, being able to answer them on the go, checking that every video is live and well, checking your stats and more, this is sorely lacking right now. And it also obviously lacks easy monetization options for creators. I'm not talking about ads because I think Peertube works better without ads, uh, but something like a support button that would be visible underneath each video that you could just select a link to. Uh, you could plug a Patreon, a PayPal, a LibraPay, whatever. I think they should definitely add something like that to let channels at least sort of derive some revenue and some interest on being on Peertube. I think as long as you cannot monetize anything on Peertube, there's not going to be a lot of people going there. And as a viewer, the main contention point for me is the lack of chapters. I generally often skip ahead in videos to get to the point or the various points that I really want to watch and ignoring the rest and not having chapters make that really difficult. Now let's talk about privacy. As Mozilla looked into Google's Play Store's privacy labels, which are these little indicators in app pages that let you know if an app is private, not private, what they collect, where they send it. And it looks like these labels are false and misleading, uh, at least on the applications Mozilla reviewed. Uh, for example, uh, on the Google Play Store, it is stated that Twitter or TikTok does not share personal data with third parties. But the privacy policies of these applications clearly say that yes, they do that. They send data to advertisers, to internet service providers, and to other third-party companies. And Mozilla looking, looking into it, uh, they found that 80% of the applications they reviewed had false labels, false or misleading labels, comparing it to what the actual privacy policy was saying. So they compared these labels and what's actually said in the privacy policy for the 20 most popular paid apps on the Play Store and the 20 most popular free apps on the Play Store, which 
is a relatively small sample and basically only encompass applications from the biggest companies. And apps that have false or misleading labels include Minecraft, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Gmail, Google Maps, WhatsApp, or Instagram. Now, other applications like various popular games, uh, those had labels that more accurately reflected what the application actually collects. But still, the conclusion remains, you just cannot trust these privacy labels on the Play Store. Because if they're false or misleading, in most of the 40 most popular apps on the store, then they're probably false or misleading for every app in the store. Uh, which means that you should really not trust them in terms of privacy. And, and of course, they're false or misleading. Could you see Google placing a, a warning, this app invades your privacy label on Gmail or Google Maps? Of course they don't. Uh, Google is the one selling the ads or using the data that these applications collect, or they're the ones doing the data collection. So of course it's in their best interest to make it appear like applications are more private than they actually are. Now, a desktop environment slash application collection slash mobile interface that I rarely talk about is MAUI. And they have a new MAUI progress report, as they call them. Uh, so if you don't know about it, MAUI is an adaptive shell that is still being worked on. They, they don't have a stable release for it yet. Uh, it runs on desktop, tablets, and mobile. And they have a big, fat collection of applications that should cover most needs and that are also adaptive, which means that you can run them on desktop, mobile, or tablet. So they have been hard at work on their stuff, and they started the migration to Qt 6, because yes, MAUI is based on KD technologies. They use the KD frameworks, and they use Qt uh, to build their environment and their applications. So it's still super early days for this migration, but it still should bring many improvements to their compositor, which is called Cask. And it will bring way better Wayland support, as well as X Wayland support as well, which is really nice. They also added a bunch of options in their settings uh, to the built-in theme manager. So you can now change the size of UI elements individually. And you can manually set the form factor you want to use, as in desktop, phone, or tablet, independently of the device you run it. So you could, for example, have a nice ultra-wide monitor, tilt it in portrait mode, and run MAUI in phone interface mode if you want it. That's, I don't know why you would want to do that, but for testing purposes, it's probably very useful to have this switch. Now, in terms of applications, the file manager was updated to be more coherent with the rest of the collection. It now uses more modern components. The image viewer now lets you sort by ads date and has a new sidebar for browsing folders. The text editor got a more graphical representation of color schemes uh, with a nice preview of the colors that will be used uh, to, to highlight the syntax and, and color your text. And the terminal also got uh, the same component. So when you want to switch the profile, the color profiles of your terminal, you will see a graphical representation of them, which is nice. Uh, and, the, and the terminal also now lets you open a specific folder when you're using, for example, open in terminal as a context menu action in the file manager, the terminal will now open in the selected folder, which is cool. And the music player also got a new tracks view with smart sections and better search. And I say this every time I talk about MAUI. I don't know how they did it, but it looks insanely good. Every screenshot looks really great. The applications look super stylish, very modern, very easy to read at a glance. You clearly understand what the app does, how it works. 
it looks like a very, very good experience. So I really absolutely need to make a reminder to try out Maui and their applications in the future because it really looks good. Now, as for regular KDE, uh, they are working on a few new features. First, Dolphin will now let you configure how permissions are shown in the details view. Uh, you can choose symbolic permissions, as in the characters, D, R, X, W, etc. Uh, you can choose numeric permissions, as in 777, 755, or you can combine both views. In Discover, pages for installed Flatpak applications will now have a small button at the bottom to let you jump straight to the Flatpak permissions in the settings, uh, which means you don't have to close Discover, open the settings, click on Flatpak permissions, scroll for the application you want to configure. You can do it straight after the install, which is really much better. Dolphin also gained uh, some performance improvements uh, for counting directory sizes, especially for network shares. Gwenview gained a much smoother zoom when using the touchpad. It won't zoom by, by scroll increments, like if you were using control plus the scroll wheel, or control plus plus and minus. It will zoom smoothly, uh, like on any touch device, which is really cool. Searching for applications in the open with dialog will now surface all applications, because previously it only searched uh, among the recommended apps, which was pretty useless because you generally don't have more than three or four recommended apps, which means that you don't need to use search to select the one you wanted. And screen sharing on Wayland has also been very much improved because not only now will it let you pick a window or the full screen with thumbnails, but you can also just select a portion of your screen. You can just draw a portion of your screen and say, this is what I'm sharing. So for example, for live streaming, I think it might be very, very useful uh, to share that screen and be able to drag other windows on top of it if you want to show your viewers something else. Uh, that's good. And another smaller change that they're working on, the weather widgets tooltip gained the wind speed and humidity information by default. Very small change, but it seems that they're really focusing on these tooltips. Uh, that's been a big part of the work they did for Plasma 5.27. And it seems that they just aren't done yet with all of that. Okay, and let's finish this podcast with some gaming news. And the first one is interesting. Uh, well, <laughs> all of them hopefully are interesting. But the first one really caught my eye. Uh, it's about Box64 slash Box86. It's a compatibility layer to run x86 applications on ARM. And now it can run the full Linux Steam client. That's really cool. Because it means that it could open the gates of Linux gaming on, on stuff like Pinebooks and Pinebook Pros on Raspberry Pis, but also, more importantly, combined with a newer Linux kernel, you could run Steam games on Linux on an Apple M1 or M2 chip <laughs> running a translation layer. Which means that, if, if you think about it, you would basically run Linux on Apple ARM and then running games designed for Windows on x86 CPUs on that Linux on Apple ARM, which means that it's, it's kind of brain-blasting, mind-blowing, I don't know, it's weird. Now, of course, it's just early steps, you can open the Steam client, but it doesn't mean that games will run with Proton and DXVK right now. These two things will also need to be supported by Box64 or Box86, I never really know which one does what. Uh, but being able to run the Steam Linux client is actually pretty awesome. And it also means that in the future, when every single part of the translation layer is done, you might be able to run handheld gaming devices with power-sipping ARM CPUs, which would be a 
better battery life experience, I guess, than using AMD CPUs like on the Steam Deck. Now, Steam will also be gaining a pretty cool feature in the near future. Uh, it's also it's already available in beta. You will be able to download games from your other local computers, from your local network, instead of re-downloading them entirely from the internet, which is very nice because it means that, for example, you've been playing a game on your desktop computer on Steam and then you want to take it on the go with your Steam Deck, but you will have to download 30 gigs of data from the internet again. But now you won't have to. You can just connect your Steam Deck to the same Wi-Fi network as your desktop and Steam will be able to download your game from your local PC if it's turned on, which means that you're not using any data, uh, which is nice if you're on a metered connection, for example, if you have data caps, or if you just want faster download speeds because your local network will very likely be faster on average than just downloading from the internet again. And for me personally, it's going to be a godsend because it means I can just have all my game library on my main PC and when I get to review a new computer, instead of re-downloading Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Horizon Zero Dawn and whatever else I use to benchmark these PCs, I will be able to download it from the local network, which will be insanely faster. So yeah, it's really, really good. Now apparently in the latest beta, they also say they improved performance for NVIDIA GPUs and the new big picture mode, but gaming on Linux says that they personally did not notice any improvement on their end, and they even say that they might have seen worse performance than before. So I'm gonna have to try that for myself on my little, on my little Steam console that I built, uh, just to see if uh, things are actually better or not. And finally, there's a new version of the Mesa drivers, version 23. These improve ray tracing and Vulkan support on AMD GPUs. They also fix an issue specifically for Rise of the Tomb Raider. Apparently when you were swimming in water, the shadows were all broken and weird on AMD GPUs. So now it's fixed with this later version of, of Mesa. Uh, they improved support for KDE's Wayland session as well. And they included a ton of new Vulkan and OpenGL extensions. So support is actually just better all around. And maybe it will let DXVK take advantage of these extensions uh, to be mapped to various DirectX calls, which means that generally performance should be a lot better. So you can download these new drivers and compile them yourself, or you can wait for your distribution to ship the packages or use a PPA or whatever. It's always the better strategy if you value your system stability to use something that has been already packaged instead of trying to build it yourself on a system that was not designed for that. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links that I use to make this podcast are in the description uh, in the show notes. And if you want to help this podcast keep going, you can also support me. I left links to my Patreon and my PayPal uh, down there. I might add LibraPay in the future. Uh, some people have actually requested that. So if it's not too hard to set up, I will probably do it as well. So thank you all for listening to the podcast. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.